All right, open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. And today we're going to talk about the basics of daily living. Now, I'm kind of winding this down. And we're really going to concentrate on verses 46 and 47. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read verses 41 through 47. But we're really going to concentrate on the last two verses of Acts chapter 2. So once again, let's, uh, let's read together. Follow with me as I read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among as anyone had need. So continuing daily <clears throat> with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity or singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So I want to draw your attention to the last two verses there. And specifically in the, in the beginning of verse 46, it says, So continuing daily. And then at the end of verse 47, it says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They continued daily, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They continued, the Lord added. God added while they continued. And guess what? They continued while the Lord added. Uh, and what we see here is that our responsibility is to continue. It's not our responsibility to add. We don't bring the increase. The Bible says God brings the increase. Paul writes this in his letter to the Corinthians. <clears throat> he said, some plant, some water, but God brings the increase. It's not our job to bring the increase, but it is our responsibility to continue daily. And so we continue and God adds and God adding and our continuing, though, are linked together. They're linked here in this thought when we read the scripture, when we read the description here of the church and how the early church functioned and how they lived and how they went about not just proclaiming the gospel, but how they lived the gospel. And <clears throat> we see that their continuing and God adding was linked together. Now, uh, just let me be silly for just a moment, okay? Can I be silly for just a moment? If we were writing these verses, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, if we were writing them on the basis of, or on the experience of the modern American church, here's how the description might sound. Can y'all bear with me for a moment? And they steadfastly scheduled a worship service every Sunday. Then the concept of God became different for every soul, and many sighed and wondered. Now some who believed were together and had some things in common. So continuing sporadically with one accord in the church and meeting when convenient from house to house, they had their fellowships and ate their food. And the Lord added to the church on occasion those who were being saved. Doesn't sound quite as inspiring, does it? 
doesn't sound quite as exciting as what the Holy Spirit inspired, not just in what the writer wrote, not just in what Dr. Luke recorded, but what the Holy Spirit inspired those people to do and how they live their lives. And so the Holy Spirit has not changed. Can we all agree on that? The Holy Spirit hasn't changed. The Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ has not changed. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says, he is the God who doesn't change. In him, there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the Holy Spirit hasn't changed. The Father hasn't changed. Jesus hasn't changed. The gospel has not changed. Now, I'm not saying that the delivery of the gospel, I'm not saying that sometimes the content we preach and teach hasn't changed. I'm saying the gospel has not changed. It hasn't changed. So the only possible explanation is that we, the people of God, we've changed. Something about us has changed. Now, remember, they continued daily. It says, verse 42 says they continued steadfastly. Verse 46, they continued daily. And God added daily. So if the only, if the only thing left for us to look at in terms of what has changed is the people of God, then it begs the question, how have we changed well, it's possible that the people of God have left their first love. So we, we won't go there, but in Revelation, uh, in the first three chapters of Revelation, or when we get to chapter three of Revelation, uh, in, the, in the letter, in the seven letters to the churches, the first letter there in Revelation was to the church at Ephesus. And we see this in Revelation, uh, <clears throat> in Revelation chapter two. Jesus writes, and he's addressing the church at Ephesus, and his, his complaint about the church at Ephesus was that they left their first love. It wasn't that they were not doing lots of godly things, lots of good things. They were very busy about the work of the kingdom. It wasn't a condition that they weren't doing enough. <clears throat> the problem was the condition of their heart. And so, is it possible that we have left our first love somehow, some way in our heart? Is it possible that, that the people of God over time have come to believe another gospel? Paul talks about another gospel. He says, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven... Stop, time out, don't listen, don't buy into it, don't do it. So that tells us there is a true gospel and there's a false gospel. The true gospel never changes. Its power never diminishes. So the problem might be that we have come to believe and we have come to preach another gospel. Maybe a gospel that's more tickling to our ears. It makes us feel better. Uh, just a possibility. 
And that in this other gospel, the focus of our faith has become more about us and our success and our happiness and our prosperity than it is about his glory. So it's possible, but there was no malevolent intent on the part of God's people. In other words, it's very possible that God's people didn't set out to change the gospel, that they didn't set out to to just do harm to believers and create some phony message. But that through the subtle and patient deception of the enemy's malevolent intent. You know who does have a malevolent agenda against you? It is the devil. He wants to do harm to you, and he wants to do harm to you because he wants to harm God. He wants to diminish the glory of God. The devil really could care less about you except that you are tied to the glory of God. And because you are tied to the glory of God, that's why he wants to do harm to you. His ultimate purpose, really, his ultimate problem is with God. But because you're created in the image of God, because you have been created in God's sovereignty to to bring about, to carry out the purpose of God, to preach the gospel of God, to fill the, the earth with the knowledge of God, that Jesus Christ lives in you and Jesus Christ is known through you, you've now become the enemy of the enemy. And he absolutely has a malevolent intent against you. He wants to do you harm. And the greatest way that he does us harm, have you ever noticed this? I mean, he doesn't come to you and, and, and scare you with horrid visions and you know, some three-headed monster. That's not what he does. As a matter of fact, the Bible says when he comes to us, he comes to us as an angel of light. I mean, it's easy for us to be scared of a monster, right? Everybody's going to run from a monster. But not everybody's going to run from an angel of light, are they? Angel of light seems kind of appealing. I might talk to this angel here. I might see what this angel has to say. Seems really nice. I like what it says. You ever wonder why Eve didn't run from the serpent? We don't think the devil is some monster, some hideous thing. If that would have been the case, don't you think Eve would have run away from him? She didn't run from him. There was something appealing about him. And there was something appealing about what he had to say. The only problem was what he had to say had some truth in it, but it, but it, it wasn't all truth. It's like the old, uh, the old saying, if you want to poison a dog, you don't put a bowl of strychnine down for him to drink. You just put enough of it in his uh, food, in a piece of ground meat, and it tastes really good to him. But you know what? It will kill him. That's what the enemy does to us. He comes to us with appealing words and appealing visions in appealing theologies, in appealing belief systems. And our flesh 
are willing participants because our flesh likes to be petted and likes to be stroked. So it's not that God's people set out to do harm. It's that we have an enemy who set out to do harm. And he has subtly and patiently brought a deception to God's people. And God's people have drifted from the foundations that anchor our faith and our obedience in Christ. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. You can look around the church today. Look at what the church is struggling with today. The church is trying to figure out whether it's right or wrong, godly or not, to ordain openly homosexual pastors. We're trying to figure out if the Bible really says what the Bible really says. We're trying to figure out if it's okay to murder a baby while it's still in the mother's womb. But of course, we all know that once it comes outside the mother's womb, well, no, wait a minute. Maybe we don't all know that. You realize even that debate's taking place. And you would think by reading the Bible that if you just had a simple reading of the Bible and you took what the Bible said at face value, these would be easy things to figure out. It's not that they're complicated. It's that we have given place to deception. And now over time, over great periods of time, we've been conditioned to believe a lie. And now we find ourselves questioning, men and women of God, questioning whether, well, do you think the Bible really, do you think that's really applicable still? I mean, don't you think, you know, that was like in the Old Testament when they were wandering around the desert or something. Surely there was a reason why God said it was bad then, but it's not bad now, Right? wrong you see how deception works and so we've drifted from the foundations that anchor our faith and our obedience in christ we read this wednesday night in our study in the psalms psalm eleven three says if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do in the beginning, God created. If you don't believe that, there's a problem. I'm not telling you how you have to exactly believe it. I know how I exactly believe it. I believe it exactly the way the Bible writes it. But if you don't believe in the beginning God created, if we're going to fish on that, if we're going to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. If we can't believe that, then what else, what else are we not going to believe? If I don't believe in the beginning God created, then how do I believe God so loved the world? He sent his only begotten son. How do I know the son really came? Have you seen him? How do you know Jesus really walked the earth? Have you ever seen him? How do you know Napoleon walked the earth? Have you ever seen him? You see the slippery slope? we begin to go down. And in the church, we just kind of put that off and say, well, that's the world, you know, that's, that's not me. That's, that's, you know. But yet, in the church, we're having these, these debates that should not be debatable. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So we need to remember that God is sovereign and that God is faithful 
And God ever calls us to return to our foundations. This is what a sovereign and a faithful God does. A faithful God does not leave his children wandering aimlessly. Just like faithful parents don't leave their children wandering aimlessly in the highway. They, they, they go and get them and bring them back to safety. This is what a faithful God does. A faithful God does not leave his children. A faithful Christ doesn't leave his church out there. He calls her back to the foundations. God ever calls us to return to our foundations. That's what this call back to the basics is about. It's about the church returning to the foundational principles and practices that are basic to our faith, basic to our worship, and basic to our life in Christ. And while the enemy is getting us so preoccupied with ourselves and our own problems, and we are so magnifying our own problems and our own difficulties, we've lost sight of what's happening around us. And we're so consumed with ourselves that we don't see that the church as a whole has drifted from its moorings, drifted from its foundations. All we want is a theology that will deal with my problem, scratch my itch, solve my problem. I don't really care about everybody else. Now, we might not say it that way, but that is, you just look around the landscape of the church. That's what we've got today. You go in the bookstores and the overwhelming majority of the books, you know what they're about? They're about how you can fix your problem. Very few of the books you're going to see are written about how the church can reach the lost, how the church can return to a place where the people of God are the glory of God in the earth. Very few are written about how we as a people will walk out our lives on the face of this earth and come hell or high water, come life or death, that we will glorify the creator of heaven and earth and we will spend our lives for his glory. For his glory. That his fame would go forth. That his name would go forth, that he would be known among the nations. What about you, Pastor Jeff? Don't you want them to know you? No, the Bible says I should not be concerned about whether they know me or not. I am put here on this earth to make sure that they know Jesus. It's not only about returning to the basics, it's about continuing in them daily and trusting with faithful expectation that the Lord will add to the church daily those who are being saved. Our prayer, our hope, and our work is for the real transformation to take place at every level. That real transformation has got to begin in your heart. But it can't stop in your heart. It's got to transform your life, but it can't stop with your life. Because your heart and your life, you're here for something greater than yourself. You're here for something greater than you're for and who cares about anymore. You're here for something greater. You exist for him. Remember, I'm going to keep telling you this. Jesus does not exist for you. You were created for Jesus. Church growth 
has become a movement that has settled for the migration of Christians from one church to another church based on appeal instead of seeking the transformation of the lost by the power of the gospel. There is no real evangelism taking place in America. We just have Christians moving from place to place. Jesus did not die on a cross just so we could create churches in environments that are more appealing than others so we could move from one hot thing to another hot thing. That's not what this is about. Jesus came. He died so that the lost could be saved. How did you come to be saved? How did you go from being lost to found? Somebody prayed for you. Somebody spoke the gospel. Somebody lived the gospel. I don't care if it was a mother, a grandmother, a father, a neighbor, a cousin. Somebody did. You're here because somebody, somehow, some way, communicated, modeled, lived. The gospel became real to you. Now, I know ultimately, listen, God did that. We don't save anybody. We don't have the power to save anybody. Only God can save. But God in his sovereignty has chosen that he will use failed men to preach his gospel, to teach his gospel, to live out his gospel so that men would see the goodness and the glory of God, that men would see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. God's ordained it to be so. So this isn't about moving, migrating Christians from one place to another. That's not discipleship. That's marketing 101. We're not H-E-B and Walmart. We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not operate like H-E-B and Walmart. We should operate like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That may mean you get crucified. Because if they crucified your Lord, they may just crucify you too. Oh, heavens no, pastor. That's not what God promises me. He promises me health, wealth, and prosperity. Surely, uh, he's already been crucified. I won't have to be crucified. Really? What Bible are you reading? Paul said, oh, that I could know his sufferings and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm not advocating suffering. There's enough suffering in the world. We don't have to try to suffer. But here is something very important for us to know and to understand. If you live on this planet for any length of time, suffering will come to you. And you can incantate and you can shake magic dust in its face and you can do all kinds of things that basically amounts to witchcraft to try to keep it away from you. But nowhere, if you'll read this Bible honestly, nowhere does this word say that you will walk through this world and never experience pain and suffering. 
that suffering will never darken your door. It doesn't say that. Jesus, your savior, made this promise. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, how can you be of good cheer in the midst of tribulation? I don't know. The apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 5. We glory also in this. We glory in tribulation. Like, is something wrong? Does he have a mental condition or what? Why would you glory in tribulation? Well, he tells you why. Because we know this, that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his spirit. And you know what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13? Love never fails. You know why it never fails? Not because you never fail, but because God never fails, because God is love and his love for you even in the midst of tribulation, never fails. His love for you, even in the midst of your deepest, darkest suffering, his love never fails. Do you believe that? Do you know that, Christian? Because if your belief in God, if your allegiance to God is based on how good you perceive he is to you, if, if it's based on your level of suffering in this world, and you're going to give yourself to the highest bidder. Whoever promises me the least amount of suffering, that's who I'm going to worship. Really? Then we have missed, we have missed who this God is. We have missed the creator. We have missed the savior. We have missed the good news. Now, I'm just in Acts chapter 2, but you can go and read the rest of the book of Acts, and you're going to see that these, these people experienced intense persecution. And they did it with joy. You can read church history. There's, there's volumes of books written about church history. You can read the personal accounts of those who watched the Christians go to their death in the Colosseum. In, in venues, listen, they set up amphitheaters. And, and we're going to watch a Super Bowl today. They had stadiums, and instead of people playing football, they had people down there being eaten alive by wild animals, and it was sport to them. It's what they did. Here's the vendor. Hey, Give me one of those large popcorns and one of those large Dr. Pepper. Oh, look, look, look. Here come the tigers. Man, I love it when the tigers take the guy's head off. That, that, that was entertainment in Rome. That's what they did on a Sunday afternoon. And it kind of it ticked the Romans off. That when the Christians would go out there, they didn't seem to scream and cry and throw a fit and cuss and matter of fact if you read many of the accounts the pagan romans write how the christians would go and they would have a smile or they would have this peace or they would be singing a song right up until breath left their body how did they do that were they delusional were they just insane were they what, what was it? Or had they come to discover someone, something? Did they have a revelation that maybe no one else had? Maybe only other Christians had. Maybe they realized that their hope, their joy, their future, it wasn't based on what happened to them here on this earth, but it was in a person who had already overcome death, who had already overcome sin, 
who was not in a tomb, but was raised and had ascended to heaven. And they understood that their hope was in this man called Jesus. Not that they wanted to die, but if death came to them, they said, hey, my life is in his hand. He is the sovereign. He guides my every step. The steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. Do you know that God ordered the righteous steps of many Christians into the Colosseum to be consumed by wild beasts? We don't like to think about that, do we? But should that happen? That's happening in our world today. You realize that. They're not being eaten by wild beasts, but they're being killed with bullets. So we need more than just a change. We need a reformation. We need to seek more than just a change. We need a reformation of our desires, of our expectations. We need a reformation of our practices so that they align with the desire and the expectation and the practice revealed to us in the Scripture and in Jesus Christ. The people of God need a reformation of heart and mind, and only God can do that, but he will not bring that change or that reformation apart from our seeking it. This is about renewing our mind and reforming our ways to Christ. This is about the change of heart that must necessitate a change of mind and a conforming to Christ in our life. This is about making our faith and our life in Christ real in a real world. There were people that came to faith in Christ because they simply witnessed Christians dying and in their death they magnified Jesus. And they said, I don't know what these guys have, but whatever it is, I I must have this. You don't know how many people watch your life and through your life, they are making a determination. Do you name the name of Jesus? Then let your life magnify Jesus. Whether you're walking on the mountaintop or whether you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, let your life magnify Jesus. We need to see and we need to seek the change necessary for the church to begin to effectively fulfill the commission Christ gave us. And to do so, listen to me, and to do so with all the love, all the joy, and all the glory due his name. This isn't about you gutting it up and making yourself do something you don't want to do. I'm saying, if that's where you're at, begin to pray. Begin to seek his face. Say, just tell him, this is what I do. I just tell, God, there's a problem. There's a problem with me right now because I'm not motivated by joy. Easy for me to be motivated out of obligation. Certain things the pastor's expected to do. Do you want me to do those things just because I'm obligated to do those things? Or do you want me to do those things because it is my greatest joy to do what pastors do? Listen, it better be my greatest joy to do what pastors do. Otherwise, you guys will be paying my medical bills or my mental hospital bills or something, right? And it's the same with all of us. We need to find our greatest joy in walking out this Christian life. 
It's there. It's there for you. You can have that. The question is, are you hungry? And are you thirsty for that? And are you willing? If you don't have that, if you don't know that, are you willing to go after that in prayer, seeking the face of God, asking God to do in you what only he can do? That can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. That reformation has to begin in each one of our hearts and each one of our minds and it must grow and continue steadfastly and daily. This isn't a once and done deal. God didn't save you so that you could just mark it off your list and say, okay, I'm saved. Now I can move on to the rest of the things on my bucket list because you know when I die, I sure want to make sure I go to heaven and not hell. Now that's not the point. When God saved you, He took you. He owned you. And your life is for him. He wants you to find your greatest joy in living your life in him and for him. And for his glory. So stop looking for the quick fix formula. Because it doesn't exist. And start continuing steadfastly and daily in him. Everybody wants a magic bullet. Give me some magic pixie dust or this magic oil. If you'll just put that magic oil on me, pastor, then, you know, snap your fingers and God will do it. (laughs) Where in the world do we come up with these things? No, you know what we're called to do? We're called to continue daily. We're called to steadfastness. When you read the scripture, sometimes don't just notice what's there, but notice what's not there. In matter of fact, when we read these scriptures, you'll notice what's not there. It doesn't say that they they did this because it was always convenient for them. It doesn't even say that they did this because, you know, uh, it was the most fun thing going and, you know, we're all about having fun, right? It was the most entertaining. It doesn't say that. Read the writings of the Apostle Paul. You think Paul wanted to get beat and left for dead several times? You think he wanted to be shipwrecked? You think he wanted to be stoned? I'm not talking about what you get in Colorado or Washington State either. Okay? No. But he did that. He went into situations knowing what was going to happen to him, not because he wanted it to happen, but because the glory of Christ was more appealing to him than the fear of what might happen to him. Is the glory of Christ more appealing to you than inconvenience? Is it? So we look for this magic formula, some quick, easy bullet point, some step, some formula to focus on to make the magic happen. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. God brings the magic, okay? He's the one that does it. You magically were born again. No man did that for you. God did that. But he does not bring that apart from our participation in a steadfast daily work and working out that we're called to as he works in us. Let me me read to you what the Apostle Paul writes in in, uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hold thing, holding fast the words of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, I am. If I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That means there was the real temptation to complain and the real temptation to dispute. That means it wasn't a perfect world for them either. You guys get that? Everybody's looking for the perfect place. Well, if I could just find the perfect church, doesn't exist. Guys are going, you know, if I could just find the perfect woman, she doesn't exist. Women are going, you know, if I could just find the perfect man, he doesn't exist either. Jesus, he's the only one, okay? And you can have Jesus as your husband. Ladies, you can just decide to have Jesus as your husband and you don't have to. Seriously, he's the husband to the husbandless. He's the father to the fatherless. Fatherlessness is a, is a scourge in our, in our country now. And the answer, what is the answer? Jesus is the answer. What do we do with the 33% of all children born in fatherless homes? Do we just, do, what do we do? We run down their fathers and, and make their fathers come back to them? No. The answer is the gospel. The answer is to introduce them to the God who is their father, to the Savior who will be a father to the fatherless, that they can experience the true love of a true father. The gospel is the answer, and we hold the answer. We are the church. We are the stewards of the gospel. We've got the answer. What are we doing with it? There's no quick and easy fix, formulas for the work of God. We are not talking about glitches to be smoothed out or tweaks to be made or programs with greater appeal to be adopted. We've done that for decades now. And it's not working. You know why it's not working? Because our problem's not the wrong program. Our problem's not some glitch or some tweak that needs to be made. Our problem is sin. Because what we're talking about is sin. The same sin that sent the Son of God to the cross. The same sin that nailed him there and killed him on that cross. This is what we're talking about. This is our problem. Sin is the problem. We can talk about why 33% of kids are born in fatherless homes. We can talk about why... Uh, 4,000 babies are aborted every day. We can talk about why this and why that. We can examine all the reasons and do all the surveys, and, but, but that doesn't do anything to speak to the solution. The solution is Jesus. We know as the church, and the world tells us we're crazy and we're too simplistic because the, you know what the, 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 the root problem for all of these things are? The root problem is sin. I don't care. You pick your poison. Whatever it is, the root problem is sin. You know what the solution to sin is? 
Jesus Christ. Well, there goes those preachers again, just making it too simplistic. It's much more complicated than that. No, it's not. It's really not complicated at all. I'm not saying it's easy. There's a difference between it being complicated (laughs) and it being difficult. Look, the work God's called us to is very hard, but it's not complicated. Okay? Discipleship is hard work, but it's not complicated. Sin is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. But the solution is really not complicated. Jesus is the solution. For the believer, there should be nothing more appealing than Christ. But making God and making the church more appealing to unbelievers will not save them. It is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. Listen, in our mega churches, when Subway goes out of vogue, they're going to have something else in there. When Starbucks isn't the brand of choice, they're going to move on to something else. You know why? Because what drives that is what's more appealing to the people. And unfortunately, this is what drives much of our preaching and our teaching. So this goes back to our problem in the beginning. How did the people of God drift away from the foundations because we became more concerned about what's appealing to the people. And over time, what is appealing to the people changes. And if we're going to change with the appeal of the people, then, then our message is going to change. But yet God has given us a message from the very beginning. And he said, this message does not change. This message is like me. It doesn't change. So if you'll just stick with preaching the message and the God of the message, you won't have to worry about anything else. Yeah, but God, what if the people don't like that message? Do you know why they killed all the prophets? (laughs) Read your Old Testament. They killed all the prophets. They killed the prophets of God. You know why? Because the people didn't like their message. They couldn't just conveniently get rid of them. You know why? Because there was something about these prophets, man. They would not shut up. And when they would drive them out of the city, they would just come back into the city. And when they would throw them into a pit, somehow God would get them out of the pit. And here is this prophet. And you, it's really kind of comical. You see the, the, the account where the king says, I need someone to tell me the truth. Go get that prophet that I hate to listen to because he always tells me what I don't want to hear. But I know he'll tell me the truth. I mean, it's so, it's really so stupid. It's so, it's just, it's, it's really comical. You're like, can people really be this deceived? Yes, they can be. Yes, they are. So all the prophets, they killed them all. And here Jesus is telling Israel the, the parable of the vineyard owner. And finally, he says, sent servants, killed the servants. Sent more servants, killed more servants. Finally, the vineyard owner said, you know what? I know if I send my son, they will respect my son. Guess what they did to his son? They killed him too. Guess who Jesus was talking about in that parable? He was talking about himself.
answer is not making God or the church more appealing to people. The answer is the gospel. The same gospel that saves is the same gospel that is our joy and should be our powerful motivation to live it regardless of the cost. To live it for his glory. This is really serious business, church. These are life and death issues. People's lives hang in the balance when we talk about the gospel. We, we don't like to deal with it in that way. But it's the only way that I can read the Bible and it makes sense to me. The only way I can read the Bible and see what those people did, how they put their life on the line every day, how they endured, not just insult. I mean, that's what we got to put up with here in America, right? People don't like me anymore. As a pastor, this is my persecution. They don't like me. They don't come to my church anymore because they don't like me. So they say insults and they, they, that's pretty much what we deal with in America. I mean, you know, we could just take an airplane ride to Iraq or Iran and we could have a bullet uh, in our skull. Uh, What would you rather deal with? You know? I mean, I always said God put me here because he knew I probably couldn't handle it over there. Let's just be honest, okay? But we, we get upset over the silliest things. I read the Bible, the only way I can make sense of it is that those people endured not just insult, not just uh, being shunned by their friends and family, but I mean, they were taken to their death and they did it with joy. Not because they were demented, but because they had had a revelation of Jesus Christ and he had become their joy and their hope. And they understood that the lives of men and women hang in the balance based on who Jesus Christ is to them. And so they preached the gospel. They taught the gospel. They lived the gospel. They did what Jesus told them to do. They went to all the nations. They made disciples. They put their lives on the line for the cause of Christ in the gospel message. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same Lord, same Holy Spirit, same gospel. We're not a different church than what we read about in the book of Acts. We're the same church. We're just different people living in a different time. But that's all that's changed. Who is Jesus Christ to you? What is this gospel to you? Do you see the gospel as the key to life and death for those who are hanging in the balance that without the gospel and the transformation that the gospel brings, they have no hope because they are lost without Christ. Where are those like the prophets of old who will not be quiet? Are the apostles we read about or the church we read about who would not be stopped? Do you know how many centuries they have tried to stop the church? It's, it's, it's never ended. 
We are having this talk today because men and women literally put everything on the line for the sake of the gospel. And they have passed that down to us. Now the question is, what are we going to do with it? What will our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren remember about us and the gospel we preached? Is our claim to fame going to finally be when, when they realize the church came out of the dark ages and realized that homosexuality is just as normal as anything else? Is that going to be our claim to fame in the gospel? Or that Jesus is just one of many ways and the church finally got enlightened and decided to embrace all paths to God. Those are real battles taking place. Now you say, well, they don't, they don't touch me here, Pastor Jeff. I live in Little Taylor, Texas. Nobody really believes that here. Hmm? You might be surprised. But that's really not the point. The point is this. The gospel really is the power of God to salvation. The gospel really is men's only hope. And what they do with the gospel, what they do with Jesus Christ, will determine where they live eternally and how they live eternally. And I want you to get that. And I want you to find your greatest joy in living out and walking out this gospel. I want you to have a curiosity and a hunger and a thirst for Jesus that is unquenchable. I want you to have that. I want to have that. So this is my prayer. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for me. And when the church gets that, we will see some things change. We will. When we become consumed with the glory of God instead of our own personal well-being, we're going to see some things change. Let's all stand. I'm going to stop, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. And I'm going to share some other scriptures with you. So we'll just stop right there. And I want to encourage you this week to pray. I want to encourage you to invite God to open your heart and open your mind and allow God to kind of reveal to you a personal inventory. And if you desire more passion for Jesus and you're having some difficulty finding that and living that, then very simply, I would encourage you to pray and ask God to do something about that. So, Father, right now, we just come before you. And, Lord, I think we could all confess uh, that we could have more passion for you. And, Lord, I love what Caleb said at communion. God, you really not only love us, but you like us. 
God, you're not up in heaven right now just tolerating us. You're not even up in heaven right now going, man, I would like them a whole lot more if they were more passionate about me. Lord, the reason you want us to be more passionate about you is because you want us to experience more of your joy. And more of what you know will bring the satisfaction and the fulfillment to our life. God, we confess today our sin that we look in so many places, in so many ways for our satisfaction and our fulfillment when in reality it is all in you. And I believe, Father, your greatest desire for us is that we would find that, that we would discover that all of that and more is in you. I believe, God, that you want our lives to be filled with your joy, to be filled with overflowing, to be so full that we cannot contain it, that we cannot keep our mouth shut, that we cannot stop telling people, not in an obnoxious way, but in a way that is real and genuine, that people sense there is really something some overwhelming joy in our life that we have discovered. God, you would take that and use that for your glory to reveal Christ to those who are Christ-less. Use us in that way, we ask God. Help us find that fulfillment that is only found in you. We ask that you would do this for your glory, God, in Jesus' name, amen.